Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. The Bible's a fascinating book. It's interesting. There's some weird things. Matthew 27 tells us that after Jesus was crucified and raised back to life, that there was an earthquake and some of the graves opened up and some of the saints who had died long ago wandered out of the graves and walked around Jerusalem for a little bit. That's a weird detail in Matthew 27. I don't really understand that. Who were these saints? Were they old prophets, kings? What was that all about? And then in 1 Samuel 28, there's a weird event where King Saul is praying and asking God advice, and God doesn't talk to him. And so he goes to a witch of Endor, and he asks this lady to bring back someone that he knows will be able to give him good, godly advice. Samuel, a prophet who had already died, and he went to this lady and said, could you, like, bring him back? And Samuel came back from the dead. Very strange, and she was as shocked as anybody. And Samuel was basically saying, what do you want? Why did you bring me back? Weird, strange things in the Bible. In Revelation, we see a dragon, a dragon roaming around a beach. Just things that are hard to understand. Supernatural things. I've avoided preaching Revelation. One day we will, but it's tough. Because it's a lot of symbolism. A lot of strange things happening. This passage is not like that. This passage is very normal. It's Jesus deciding to start his ministry and walking by the Sea of Galilee, he begins to recruit people to be his disciples. Uh, I think, I forget, I think it was Piper, I just saw this, that said the kingdom, the kingdom spreads on earth through God's voice and our voice. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was going to train these men to proclaim and live out the dynamics of the kingdom. But it was a very ordinary looking moment, interrupting people in their everyday lives. So if you would, turn to Mark 1, 14 through 20, or you can follow along. If you don't have your Bible, you can follow along on the screen, or um, if it's on the sermon notes as well. But Mark 1, 14 through 20. We're not going to spend much time in verses 14 and 15, but those are enormously important. Um, But I, I I want to get to the actual act of Jesus recruiting people to be disciples. So let's start with verse 14, though. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. And saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel, which is the way into the gospel through Jesus. Repent from life apart from Jesus, all the ways you're making your own decisions instead of living how God would like us to live. But more than anything, turning to Jesus, that is the way in and saying, I can't possibly be a part of this kingdom 
in my own strength, in my own capacity, in my own obedience, I've already messed that up, so I need a king like Jesus, who is willing to die for all of my imperfections and sins. And he was the only king who inaugurated and launched his kingdom by dying for it. And that's what makes it possible for us to become part of his kingdom through his death and then his resurrection. Uh, Reverend Frank Limehouse says that preaching is not good advice, it's good news. So I always want to be careful to not just say, here's how you become a, a better person. It's, here's what Jesus did for you. Here's what Jesus invites you into. Here's what Jesus already accomplished for you. So this isn't going to be some good advice. This is going to be good news of Jesus inviting us to be his disciples as well. All right, verse 16. All right, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father, Zebedee, in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Just pray with me here. Father, thank you um, that in the same way that you called those people, those men to follow you, perhaps through your Holy Spirit, through hearing your voice through the word this morning, you are also calling some of us for the first time. Help us to hear and to be responsive. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's the notes. Here's your first fill in the blank. What does this tell us about Jesus? It tells us, one, that Jesus teaches on the move. Jesus teaches on the move. So when Jesus wants to form these men into the type of people that can be trusted with the news of the kingdom, there's a lot that he needs to teach them. And what he did not do was set up a classroom where he would teach for eight hours a day and then they would go figure out how to live it. Now, classrooms are important. Learning things about God at a deep level, study is very important. But it can't only be that. Jesus said, follow me, which implies I'm going somewhere. I'm doing something. I'm moving. One of my professors at seminary said, Christianity is meant to be lived on the go. It's also meant to be taught on the go. The reason for that is Christianity is meant to be learned and seen. Both of those things. So becoming a disciple of Jesus is not like it's not like going to college. It's like becoming an apprentice. Going to college, you stuff yourself full of information, much of which will never be used. Sorry parents. 
and you can disagree with me with your kids, you're probably right. Um, being an apprentice is going to learn a job. I want to be a carpenter. I'm not just going to go take classes. I'm going to be apprentice. He's going to teach me how to do what he does. Uh, I drove, we drove to North Carolina several years ago to visit Kara's parents, and um, there were some weird noises happening in our van. And so my father-in-law helped me figure it out. He said, well, that's a wheel bearing. I was like, yeah, that's what I kind of figured too. And uh, <clears throat> and, um, and I get, I'll tell you, I get kind of insecure around car guys. Like I get so insecure and out of my element when like Chad gets his, Chad Ackerman gets his flashlight out and he's looking under the hood and I just kind of want to look with him. But I have no idea. I know nothing about cars. I have a motorcycle. I like to pretend I know something. I know nothing. I can't do anything with cars. In fact, okay, I'm getting a little sidetracked, but this is actually a hilarious story. When I was in college, my car died, and I called a tow truck driver. And a tow truck driver came, and he's looking at it. I said, I've already been looking at it. I think I already know what the problem is. I'm looking under the hood, and he's like, yeah, what's that? And I said, boom, right there. Look, see, that, that thing's cracked. That's a problem. And he's like, um, that's uh, just a piece of plastic that covers the battery terminal. And I was like, why don't you look at it and we'll, you figure it out. Let me know what you think. <laughs> it's like, I know nothing about cars. Nothing. So this wheel bearing's needing to be replaced. And my father-in-law can, like, he's the type of guy who can fix anything. He was a trainer. He's a teacher for nuclear power plants. He used to do that in San Diego, the North Carolina. Brilliant, brilliant guy, brilliant teacher. And um, he could have, like, written out the instructions and said, all my tools are in the garage, go change the wheel bearing. And that would have been trouble for everybody. He didn't do that. He, he went into the garage with me and said, these are the tools we're going to need. You carry these over the car. Um, here, you know how to take off a tire? I'm like, yeah, come on. So I, I was able to do that. I took the tire off. And then he's like, I think, I don't know, Chad, you have to bleed the brakes or something. Like, he's teaching me all these things to get to the, where the wheel bearing is. But he's, he knows how to do it. He could do it, but he's having me be his hands. Like, he's having me actually do the work. And, you know, if I had to change the wheel bearing on the other side, if I did that within five minutes of learning how to do it with him there, I probably still wouldn't be able to do it. But I'd be closer than the first time because he was working side by side with me saying, watch for this, be careful about that, here's how you use this tool that is how Jesus discipled. People need food. What do you guys think we should do? Nah, that's a bad idea. Let's do this. And then let's debrief about that afterwards. Remember this lesson. Christopher Wright, in his book, The Mission of God's People, says that the gospel is a message that must be heard and a life that must be seen. Discipleship is lived doctrine. Seeing what we know about God, studying, thinking about what we know about God, and having that light us up from the inside out. There are intangible aspects of discipleship that need to be observed and almost caught as you're learning doctrine, as you're learning what's true about God, to see how it affects a human life. Again, Willard was once asked, if you had to describe Jesus in one word, 
Think about this. If you guys had to do this, what would you say? If you had to describe Jesus in one word, what would you, what word would you use? And Dallas said, relaxed. Now, immediately, if you are someone that enjoys studying theology, you have a 10 million reasons why that's a terrible answer. That's not accurate. That's false. It's not true. He is not relaxed. I can think of a mil- like 10 times where he doesn't, he's not relaxed at all in the Bible. And for seven years, I slowly, verse by verse and paragraph by paragraph, read through the Gospels over and over, and I think he's right. It's one of those things that you have to see it. When you know someone, when you come across someone and study with someone who really knows Jesus and really is gospel-centered, can't, doesn't just say the words, doesn't just know the vocabulary, doesn't just read the right authors, but the gospel is alive in them, you'll notice they're fairly at peace and relaxed and tranquil and gentle and joyful, just joy just oozes out of them. When you're being mentored by someone spiritually, you ought to see how that doctrine, how what we know to be true about God in the end of things affects our lives. So this type of teaching and modeling is something that I need to work on. It's something that we need to work on as a church. Um, But if we're able to get a taste of this type of life-on-life discipleship outside of just programming, but really learning how to invest deeply in the life of another person who wants to follow Jesus... It will animate this church in ways that nothing else can. This is why those of you who decide to explore our membership class, you'll discover that personal ministry is going to become central to everything we do at Southside. It's not one person in a hundred listening. It's a hundred people pushing on the same rock. That's what Southside needs to be. And this week, our shepherd team approved a document that outlines our personal ministry philosophy that we will be presenting as part of our membership process. But it it tells you exactly why we emphasize personal ministry, one person pouring, investing into the life of another person through scripture, through prayer, through living it out in front of them. Incredibly, incredibly important, incredibly important powerful because otherwise we'll just become a church where you go to a few people and they tell you what you're supposed to do (laughs) you know there's a weird parent-child dynamic in a lot of there's a misunderstanding I think of eldership in the bible Um, a lot of people misunderstand that to think that I'm supposed to be your I'm supposed to tell you exactly how to live in every situation of your life and it's insane We want to become a church that doesn't restrict freedoms as much as we enhance and cultivate maturity. A group of adult Christians learning how to follow Jesus together. That's what we're going after. And I think the only way is discipleship through personal ministry. All right. Dave Thomas, when I lived in Strongsville, was a really generous, kind organized, disciplined person who studied a lot, who knew a lot of the Bible. 
and he started meeting with me every week. It would either be at his house at 6 in the morning while his kids were getting ready for school or going out for coffee or going out for a meal. And we would have our Bible in this little program called Operation Timothy. He would take me through this stuff. Operation Timothy is a discipleship material. I, I think I forget who put it. Maybe navigators. I forget who put it together. The material was okay. But Dave was amazing. And he changed my life in some significant ways. Because as I was learning these things about God, I was seeing him live it out. And I saw the way that he treated his family his wife, I saw the way that he was interruptible when we were at the house with his kids. I saw the, how seriously he took prayer and study. I saw the lists of people that he prayed for. I mean, he discipled me not just with what we learned, but with his life. That's what we're looking for. It's probably similar to you, you know? If you have grown as a Christian, if you think back to the times in your life where you've grown the most... You probably think of names, not sermons, probably not books, maybe some of you, and that's good, that's okay. I can think of some books that changed me too, but mostly it was people. Good discipleship requires proper nouns, names of people, particular people who invested and poured into you, and we need more people who are alive and at rest in Christ and joyful and not needing anything from you, ready to pour out into your life. Because the first requirement of a disciple is that you are filled with the love of Christ. Because if you don't know how to receive love from God, every other relationship will be parasitical. You'll need something from everybody else. All right. Number two, Jesus looks for us before we ever look for him. Jesus went looking for Simon and Andrew. Jesus went looking for James and John, not the other way around. By the way, I just realized, somebody told me that when you move like this, there's like a squeak. Did you guys hear that? I never heard that before. I just realized that that was happening. Someone please come in and that might be a management team thing. Right here it is. All right. Um, not good for me right now. All right. So Jesus went looking for Simon and Andrew. Jesus went looking for James and John. Not the other way around. They didn't go looking for him. He went looking for them. He pursued them. The Bible is the story of a broken-hearted father going on a quest to find his runaway children. He always is the one that initiates and pursues first. You might not be looking for Jesus this morning. He's looking for you. You might not be interested in Jesus this morning. He's interested in you. You know, back then, Jesus was a rabbi. He's a teacher. Rabbis didn't, like, walk around the community recruiting people. They waited for people to come to them. And it was a very intense process. If you wanted to be discipled by a rabbi, it was like trying to get into a very prestigious college. Applications and, you know, back then you had to know the Old Testament backwards and forwards. And you probably had to have most of it memorized. Um, 
it was rigorous. There was a process of being interviewed. You had to be recommended by your teachers. It was difficult. Rabbis didn't walk around inviting people to be their disciples. It just didn't happen. Jesus changed the paradigm. It'd be like, you know, I don't, if you're a student, think of your like dream college that you, you would just love to, to be accepted into this college or this university. And today after service, you go outside and waiting by your car is like the president of that university saying, please, please, would you just, just forget, don't even go through the application process, just, just, just come be a part of our, our family at this school. And I, I'll personally mentor you, I'll personally make sure that you succeed and you do well. Would you please just come to our school? That's kind of what these disciples probably were feeling. Jesus invited the disciples, and he's inviting you <laughs> to have astonishingly personal access to him. Like, as intimate as you can have. He, God is available as, he's more available than we can imagine, in, which is why we probably are going to regret that we don't go to him more often than we do someday. This access, I think, is described really well by Tim Keller in this statement. He says, the only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. Jesus looks for us before we ever look for him. And three, finally, Jesus serves us more than we could ever dream of serving him. Jesus serves us more than we could ever dream of serving him. When Jesus asked the disciples to follow him, they had no idea the amount of goodness that he was going to bring into their lives. No idea. You know, we often make ourselves sound heroic in sharing how we surrender our lives to Jesus as though we're making a huge sacrifice. You know, I gave up everything to follow Jesus. I left it all behind. Now, Peter did the same thing, actually. I'm going to read a passage. Um, one of his disciples, Peter, had the gall to say a lot of crazy things, but he had the gall to say this to Jesus in talking about all that the disciples had given up for him. This is, this is Mark 10, 28 through 30. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. Like, I wonder if when, G when Peter said to Jesus, we left everything to follow you. What are we going to get for it? <laughs> I wonder if Jesus was thinking, first of all, do you have any idea what you're getting out of this deal? There's going to be a point in your life when you will no longer cry ever again. I will be with you and near you through everything you experience. I will empower you for all the difficulties you face in life. And you'll stand on a reconstituted earth someday with me as your resurrected king who promises never to let anything bad happen to you ever again. It's a pretty good deal. 
And second, I wonder if Jesus was, was thinking when Peter said, we left everything to follow you. I wonder if Jesus was thinking, you left everything? <laughs> you gave up everything? I left everything. I left the eternal blissful fellowship with the Father in the Spirit to allow myself to be forsaken by the Father, to have him look away, to have him turn his back on me while I'm on the cross. I left heaven to become a baby in a manger in Bethlehem. But for the sake of the joy of the cross, so that on the other side of it, you could be my brother, my sister, my friend. But I probably left more than you, Peter. <laughs> Peter later, later makes up for this in a letter that he writes in the, the Bible when he describes what we actually give up to follow Jesus by calling it, in his words, the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. That's 1 Peter 1.18. That's what we live, or that's what we leave to follow Jesus. We're the ones that get the really good deal. <laughs> We leave an empty and vain life where we think that we can have eternal significance apart from God. We think we can be interesting apart from Jesus. There's not much interesting about a human being apart from God. But a human being with Jesus, that's fascinating because there are endless possibilities of what God can do with that life. Jesus gives us far more than we ever give him. Jesus serves us far more than we ever serve him. If you're being discipled by a rabbi back then, you also became a servant. You did what he wanted you to do. You washed his clothes. You made sure he had food to eat. You would go into town and make sure everything was, was set up for his teaching itinerary. You made sure the temple was ready for him. You made sure he was honored. You were his errand runner. You were his servant. That's what you did in exchange for him allowing you to be his disciple. It would have been unthinkable for a rabbi to kneel down and wash the feet of his disciples. Jesus serves us far more than we'll ever serve him. And the invitation to follow Jesus, to be his apprentices, is available for us today too. We want to be a church full of Jesus apprentices. We want to be a church full of people that go out into the world and the world sees dynamic, unexplainable, impossible transformation in our lives because of what Christ is at work doing in us. Here's how Dallas Willard describes the life available to us as apprentices, as disciples of Jesus in a prayer of blessing that he wrote. So we give up a vain, empty, meaningless life, according to 1 Peter, and this is what we get in return. A rich life of joy and power, abundant in supernatural results, with a constant, clear vision of never-ending life in God's world before you and of the everlasting significance of your work day by day, a radiant life and death.
That's the gift he gives us in return for giving up our vain way of living apart from him and following him. It's not a bad deal. That's enough for today. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.